Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby. Hello. And joining me as always, via the miracle of satellite technology, it's the sky captain in the world of tomorrow. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? Good, yeah. Uh, I'm settling in after a nice Christmas weekend, which admittedly did not get off to a great start because my car broke down as I was driving home, which is the kind of the verse, the Chris Ray song that has, has rarely sung. Yeah, it's you've become a Christmas cliche, Ed. Most Christmas films or something do deal with someone struggling to get home in a kind of planes, trains and automobiles style. But all I need to know is, was John Candy with you? Uh, sadly, not on this occasion, no. If if his if his uh, spectre was ever going to show up to help me at the side of the road, that would have been it. But mm. it was not to be. I think everything would be better with a John Candy force ghost uh, <laughs> to appear and kind of give you spiritual guidance. Hey, um, we've we've got the footage, and if Ryan Johnson's listening... <laughs> yeah, I'm sure someone can do his voice. It'd be great. Um, if people can put Travolta into all of those gifts as a mm. force ghost, I think we can we can create an entirely new John Candy performance for episode eight. Mm. The, uh, the movement starts here. We'll just wait for the groundswell of public opinion to join us. Um, Hashtag Quai John Candy. Quai John Candy. Brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Anyway, what the hell are we doing? Uh, we're doing our end of year show that also means it's our birthday. It's our fifth birthday, is that correct? Uh, yes, that is correct. We started this in 2011, so this would be this would be the fifth best of that we've done. So it's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. 2015. Go on, sorry. I'm getting old. I know. I can feel it. I've got kind of a stiff hip, as it were. Cruising down the street in my six boat. Shit, that ain't it. Look like anyone. But there's only one of it. Okay, well, so far we have murder and kidnapping. But we can work in pirates if it would make you more comfortable. Guy leans on a guy, and suddenly the whole town just looks the other way. Tell me you know what you're doing. I don't. I never did. It's been a great year i think 2015 we I remember we marked on our opening um episode of this podcast ever that 2011 was a stellar year and for many reasons and i think it's fair to say that this year has kind of come very close to uh to kind of getting near that yeah i think if i were to kind of rank great movie years of my lifetime i think 1999 is probably the the standout mm-hmm. if you look at the, the films that were released that year it was it was it was really incredible breadth of, of quality and but 2011 and this year are the two best ones in terms of you know where I have really been able to pay attention and to see as many of the great films as possible as opposed to 1999 which I only realized was great many years later when I would watch like stuff like The Iron Giant and be like oh this is great but all of these films came out in 12 in that one 12 month span and in 1999 also uh, Deep Blue Sea came out which we all know was the kind of last great film of, of the previous century it was what the Lumiere brothers were, were dreamt of. Yeah, yeah. Their force ghosts can rest easy now. Um, <laughs> that giant sharks can cure Alzheimer's. Um, they were just standing off to the side, looking kind of them and George Melier, mm-hmm. just staring off, watching LL Cool J fight sharks, and they were just kind of like nodding and saying, "Yes." Yeah, this, this is, is what, what we, we did wanted. this for, guys. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. 
It was a very good year, all told. What I was surprised about was there was a, a great breadth of uh, good films this year. It's going to be reflected by our end-of-year list. Um, but across the board, films seem to be really good. There were really great blockbusters. Uh, there were really great kind of art house films, really great foreign films, uh, really great British films this year. Um, we kind of ran the gamut, didn't we? Yeah, it is one of those ones where, you know, at the end of the year... When you, particularly if you're on Twitter and everyone starts posting their lists, then you know there's a few consensus films that show up in a lot of lists. And I think that some of them will show up on ours, but there's also like hundreds of films that people are just talking about all the time, like stuff that you, you would just never hear of otherwise. But everyone's just like saying, "Oh, you really need to check out the Forbidden Room" or "Advantageous" and you know stuff like that. And you think, "God, there's just there's too much, there's too much mm. to keep up with." Yeah, the amount of films that have been appearing on people's lists that I didn't get to see this year, you know, that ordinarily could have made up a top ten of any other year. It's been a really, really kind of strong one. And we'd kind of noticed a trend this year, didn't we, that uh, kind of feeds in from the box office uh, side of it, that the the big successes at the box office also seem to be films that were kind of critically well regarded. Yeah, this was something that was pointed out a few weeks ago. There were articles just kind of pointing out that there was a surprisingly large correspondence between the films that were doing really, really well at the box office, particularly in America, and their Rotten Tomatoes ratings. And obviously, Rotten Tomatoes is not a perfect measure of quality because a film that gets 95% on there just means that 95% of critics didn't hate it. Mm. It doesn't mean that it was like a a perfect film. But, you know, in, in in the overwhelming majority of cases, the films that did well got good reviews. You got stuff like... Jurassic World, which a uh, film that uh, not everyone loves, and I'm I have mixed feelings on it, but generally got pretty good result reviews. Star Wars: The Force Awakens got good reviews. Age of Ultron: Inside Out was a huge hit and got amazing reviews. Furious Seven, you know, got pretty good reviews. Minions, I think, one of the few ones that got pretty that got bad reviews, but was still like not not you you weren't in the territory of something like, uh, you know, a Transformers film getting 5% on Rotten Tomatoes and making a huge amount of money. Mm. Bad, in general, bad films didn't do as well as good films. Mm. Kind of one of the, the biggest kind of uh, overarching news stories of the year, the thing that has kind of seemingly cast a shadow over all of 2015 was the slow, long build to Star Wars being released. Uh, as kind of listeners will know, you've just heard... In our previous episode, what we thought of the Star Wars, we kind of won't go into it again, but it's crazy just how much space and time and energy it took up. Uh, I mean, it was a huge cultural event, but the sheer amount of news and more importantly, non-news that was uh, kind of clogging up feeds and web pages this year was kind of crazy. Yeah, Slash Film have paid their bills for the next five years with all of their Star Wars non-news coverage this year. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, and they're not even the worst offenders. It's it was kind of nuts, but like it was, it kind of seeped over, it crossed over. You know, stories about kind of Star Wars casting or on set incidents or whatever. You know, is is kind of on BBC News or is on the Guardian front page. It's it's really kind of saturated um, all of media for a whole year, and uh, now we're going to get a Star Wars film every year. This is what it's going to be like. Yeah, it does make me wonder how much coverage the subsequent ones are going to get because obviously it's going to be big business, but I wonder if it will eventually just get down to the same level you get with Marvel films now where casting gets a bit of attention, but it's not 
it's not that huge of a big deal when Benedict Cumberbatch is cast as Doctor Strange. You know, it's obviously something that's interesting, but I feel like this, to me, it feels like this was kind of the watershed moment of uh, film news and, and news around a singular film just reading reaching a huge level. Uh, I'm not sure how much it can be sustained, but then again, I don't think anyone was expecting the film to do the kind of huge business that it's done. So I think anything is possible with the Star Wars franchise at this point. Mm, mm, absolutely. Um, also this year, we've kind of seen the trend of what some people are calling the Lego legacy quill. Is that how we're going to say it? Uh, legacy quill, I think is, is legacy quill. Um, it's not a sequel to the Lego movie. Um, it is about when a film is remade essentially, but as a sequel and they're, you know, we've had a few of them before, um, but we've had quite a few this year. We've had, like we say, Star Wars Episode Seven, which is obviously part seven of a uh, of a franchise, but is clearly a soft remake of of the first film, uh, Jurassic World, which is a hard remake of the first film. Uh, the uh, National Lampoon's Vacation movie, and then we've got Creed coming up, which is uh, kind of very similar. Um, is this something to be worried about, Ed, or is this just a nice way of of kind of wiping the slate? mostly clean uh i think it's for me so far the results have been pretty positive you know creed is a really great movie uh force awakens is is way better than it should be jurassic world is fine um (laughs) you know it's the second best jurassic park movie which is like that's you know damning with faint praise but it is it's an interesting uh way of getting around the stigma against remakes where you essentially say, hey, we've got like original cast members or we're going back to the same island or, you know, that they basically try and imbue what is essentially just a remake of an earlier film with a, a great sense of history and weight. And in the case of, of of Creed, it works really, really well because you get Sylvester Stallone playing an incredibly old and frail version of Rocky and doing something that people haven't really seen him do before. And I think that, that that's a case of it working like spectacularly well. I think that... It could get if if as as often happens with Hollywood, everyone just jumps on it and it happens for every single film. Like the, if they finally get that Goonies sequel off the off the ground that everyone keeps talking about with the kids of the original cast doing it, I think then we're going to be into sort of dangerous territory. Mm. But um, you know, I think I think it's a, an interesting case of people evolving to try and defeat the stigma that remakes have by essentially saying hey no it's a new film and you get to see these guys playing all these iconic characters again mm. when it's not really yeah yeah I, th- I think we'll see a lot more of it given that you know how well those examples uh we've come up with have worked um i think it will be more palatable for studios to do that rather than remaking it with a new cast and shoehorning a cameo in um mm. i think they'll just kind of go with this approach we've been pre-booking tickets for months the park needs a new attraction every few years in order to reinvigorate the public's interest kind of like the space program corporate felt genetic modification would up the wow factor yeah we're going to talk a little bit about um the money this year we're going to talk about uh the the kind of winners and losers at the box office and here's our ed uh, with a rundown of the 10 most successful films this year, which makes fascinating reading to me for various reasons that we'll get into. Yeah, this is uh, based on worldwide grosses as of uh, the recording of this podcast. I think uh, the number one film of the year will probably change in the uh, in the coming weeks mm-hmm. uh, as Star Wars consider- continues to eat up all of the money. Uh, number 10, we have Ridley Scott's The Martian, mm-hmm. which earned £593.9 million, his biggest hit by far. 
Uh, number nine, we had The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2, which earned $616.8 million. And I think, we, you, didn't you say, kind of when we talked about it before, that that's uh, kind of reversing the trend of sequels in that it's, it's kind of starting to take, that each sequel has taken less than the previous one. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, pretty much. The, the first film, uh, the first two films did really, really well. And then the, the third and fourth ones... Uh, really didn't do particularly well at all. Well, obviously they made a huge amounts of money, but the decision to split the film in two seemed to make it less special to people and made them less willing to show up for them. And obviously uh, Lionsgate, Lionsgate released two films that between them will earn like $1.4 billion mm-hmm. and as opposed to one film that probably would have earned like $800 million. Yeah. But it definitely feels like they uh, sacrificed what could have been a huge success last year for two kind of middling successes over two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, number eight, we have Mission, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, which earned $682.3 million. That's not a shoddy return for a fifth film in a franchise. No, not at all. And, and particularly, I think, is an, again a sign that critical response means something and also the the goodwill that that series has built up over time and that it has become a a mark of quality uh the mission possible series particularly over its last three entries uh number seven we have specter which earned 850 million mm-hmm. which is a little which is less than skyfall because skyfall earned a billion dollars and was like massive but it's still higher than uh either of the previous uh uh daniel craig james bond films managed Mm-hmm. Six Inside Out, which earned eight hundred and fifty-one point six million, Ooh. which is very high, one of the highest ever for Pixar, uh, and tremendous success. Uh, then five, we have Star Wars: The Force Awakens, which has earned one point zero nine billion dollars so far, and like so, I say, is yeah, that, so far it's been on release for ten days. Uh, I think twelve because it opened in some countries on the Wednesday of last week. But yeah, fuck me. 12 days. Yeah, that is a new record for the fastest film to ever reach 1 billion. And I think uh, if we were to record this episode in two weeks, uh, it would probably be number one at the pace it's going. But currently it's at number five. Number four, Minions, which earned 1.157 billion. That is bananas. Yeah, that is is completely insane. (laughs) Just how uh, popular those incredibly annoying characters are. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to chalk it up to how much people love Sandra Bullock and John Hamm. Yeah, I think so. Uh, number three, Avengers: Age of Ultron, which earned one point four billion, did pretty well. Not made slightly more internationally than the original, but domestically earned uh, way less because I think people just didn't really like it as much, mm-hmm. uh, which is understandable. Uh, Furious Seven earned one point five one five billion. Not which is... see number seven in a franchise clocking in that amount of money. No, although this year we've got two of them doing just that. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> uh, this is. This is a, a big year for, for seventh films, mm-hmm. uh, but not for Seventh Son, which no. did not do well at all. Very uh, then, number one, Jurassic World, 1.669 billion. Mm. So the, the things to look out for there is, wow, Jurassic World, what were people thinking, uh, first <laughs> of all? But uh, am I right in thinking that films one, two, and four in that list were all made by the same studio? Universal yeah. had three films clocking over a billion each. Yeah, which is the first time that any studio has ever managed that. And they also had uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, which was another huge global hit just outside of the top 10 at number 11. The Martian and Star Wars just knocked it out at the last minute. 
so we didn't have to talk about that one. But yeah, that is the the first time that a film is a studio has managed that, and they also had a record breaking year for the amount of money that a single studio earned globally and uh, domestically. That is crazy, especially because last year they were one of the less they weren't they weren't less successful in the their films lost money. In fact, they had one of the most profitable years ever last year because all of their films were mid-budget stuff like Lucy, mm-hmm. which went on to make a huge, huge amounts of money for not very much uh, investment. Uh, but they were, in terms of total money earned, they were actually somewhere towards the bottom, due, due largely to the fact that Minions and Furious 7 were both delayed by a year for, mm. in, in the case of one film's uh, tragic uh, reasons. But, you know, they had no big franchise hits last year, but then this year... It, they've just exploded in kind of a massive, unprecedented way. Mm. What does the kind of future hold for Star Wars Episode Seven? Do you think it will cross the number one position by the end of the calendar year? Because if so, I mean, that is just... I mean, we had, like, last year, didn't we? We had American Sniper um, kind of having its box office distorted by the fact that it came out so late. Um, so if we're talking about its grosses in 2014, it actually didn't make that much, but taking its full run, it made a lot of money. But that's crazy if it's challenging for the top spot after being on release for, you know, best part of two weeks. Yeah, I think it will probably, it'll be very, very close. It'll be a photo finish to see if it uh, does it globally. I don't think it will manage it domestically just because it needs to earn like $100 million here in like five days. And mm-hmm. even though this is a very popular, uh, 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 profitable time of year because everyone everyone has time off and they can go and see films multiple times, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it will manage it, but it will almost certainly by sort of the end of January, it will be number one uh, domestically and globally by a significant margin. And it will probably overtake Avatar to be the most, finan- most uh, the highest grossing film of all time, which will mean that... Um, you know, unadjusted for inflation, and even if adjusted for inflation, it will still be pretty high up there. Mm. Uh, and, and that will make it the first time since 1997 that someone other than James Cameron has had the number one film uh, in the world. Mm, that'll be a nice change of pace. Yeah, it's kind of weird to think that yeah, that's, this is only just the beginning. Uh, they Disney's investment of four billion, I think. Um, Seems like you know money well spent. Yeah, I mean they've they've almost certainly made more than that just from the merchandising at this point, um, and the the films uh, are, are probably just gravy on the amount of action figures they've sold. But yeah, this is uh, one of their more that and purchasing Marvel probably the two most prudent purchases in uh, in recent memory as far as uh, film studios go. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned to me before we went on air that it was a bit of a peculiar year, uh, box office-wise, a little bit kind of feast or famine because there were, as we've just mentioned, some absolute kind of mega hits breaking all kinds of records. But at the same time, there was a lot, and I do mean a lot, of very high-profile films that tanked big time. Yeah, I mean, if you look at that, there's obviously like uh, big-budget stuff like Jupiter Ascending which cost a huge amount of money and lost a lot of money. But also you had things like Terminator Genesis, which was posited as, you know, a big revival for the series and uh, Paramount, I believe who are 
behind it said that they had plans to make a, 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 a new trilogy and they were going to go ahead with the second film and that didn't happen mm. <laughs> they they quietly removed it from their 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 calendar uh, so yeah that was a, another case of a film that should have been a huge hit not being won by uh, quite a big margin yeah we also had uh, the debacle that was pan uh, mm. This year we had uh, Fantastic Four, uh, Tomorrowland. Uh, we had a lot of kind of much vaunted films like Black Hat, which cost seventy million to make. It only took four million at the box office. Uh, we had The Gunman, Child Forty Four, Gem and the Holograms, Rock the Casbah, We Are Your Friends, which broke the record for the worst performance of any film that opened in more than two thousand cinemas. Um, Aloha, uh, Burn, Victor Frankenstein, Steve Jobs—they all ate a big plate of shit on toast. <laughs> uh, and some of them were even pretty good. Like, Steve Jobs is a pretty good film, but apparently uh, mm. everyone, they were just not ready to take Michael Fassbender in the role originated by Ashton Kutcher. Yeah. <laughs> Black Hat was really good, the Michael Mann movie. I saw that. Mm. I was really kind of surprised. I mean, I wasn't expecting it to do 70 million uh, business, but it's a better movie than that. Yeah, that was that was one that was very, very surprising just because obviously he's a big name director. He was working with a big star. Also, In the Heart of the Sea, another bad uh, performer for Chris Hemsworth, just opened a few weeks ago, cost a huge amount of money. And then apparently people are not interested in seeing a prequel to Moby Dick. Mm, I don't know why. It, the thing is, that's a weird thing. I mean, I don't I mean, I like Ron Howard. He's the narrator of Arrested Development and these films are, are fine, I guess. But the trailer made that look quite kind of good. But no one's into it. I guess there's another film out at the minute that people want to see. I can't think of what it might be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just it's just not big money in whaling anymore. That's really kind of a 19th century deal. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's all politically correct now. You can't make a film about whaling. What can you do? <laughs> so, like I said, yeah, there's some some kind of big flops there, and you know, some for big studios. I mean, Fantastic Four and Tomorrowland cost their their kind of uh, corporate overlords quite a bit of money. Fantastic Four. Let me say that it didn't. It kind of made less than the well half the amount of the uh, Force Awakens pre-sales. Yeah, and also didn't earn as much in its entire domestic run. Sold fewer tickets in its entire domestic run than the Tim Story ones managed on their opening weekends. Wowzer, that's a scathing indictment. <laughs> Right there. We're going to talk about a little bit about the films that we were excited about this year that perhaps let us down our disappointments of the year. I mentioned one of them there. Perhaps one of the most interesting failures of the year was Brad Bird's Tomorrowland, which I still haven't got a fucking clue what was going on in that film. <laughs> yeah, that was one that I I was really excited for. I thought it had an amazing, had amazing trailer, had obviously Brad Bird, who's a terrific filmmaker, who has done some really great work in the past, uh, which and it just never really materialised into anything worthwhile. Yeah, it was a very unusual film in the sense that nothing happens. And, <laughs> like, the, the film starts and it's about this one person, then it's about someone else, then it's about someone else, and you realise you've been watching it for an hour and you still don't know who the main character is. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what the story is about. You don't know why things are happening. Then Hugh Laurie's turned up and you don't know what's going on and then you're really frightened and then it's over. Yeah, I think it was... Um, I think Eric uh, Eric S. Davis pointed this out on Twitter that it's a film in which you don't know what the plot of it actually is until the final 10 minutes. Hmm. Uh, and the rest of the time it's, it's just a, a typical kind of Damon Lindelof thing of just kind of maintaining the mystery 
and assuming that you'll go along for the ride, but it didn't have, unlike, say, Lost or The Leftovers, the characters and their dynamics were not interesting enough to keep you invested in the mystery. Mm -hmm. And so you just kind of sat there feeling just really frustrated and wondering when exactly they're going to reveal what the hell is going on with Tomorrowland. And then when it does get revealed, it's kind of a little bit boring. And also it is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of science fiction in that its central premise seems to be, oh, science fiction used to be really hopeful and now everything is really bleak. And I'm thinking, I don't know, lots of lots of science fiction that uh, was made in the 50s and 60s was all about the, the looming global uh, nuclear apocalypse. <laughs> it wasn't exactly cheery stuff. Yeah, and it's kind of weird. The tone of it is kind of very unusual. It has got that kind of 50s World's Fair kind of uh, like I say, very positive outlook, but then there's scenes where innocent civilians get kind of vaporized by these weird kind of secret agents from the future. Yeah, that, uh, and also you have like stuff like the scene where they go to a comic book shop and Catherine Hahn and uh, Key and Michael Key are shooting at them with toy ray guns that fire real weapons, which is kind of funny. Mm. And they, they kind of try and bring as much to it, but also feels widely, uh, wildly out of step with the rest of the film. It's yeah. just a, it feels like a film that went through like 30 different drafts and they just assembled as many of the pages as possible. Mm-hmm. Another couple of films that we've mentioned before in previous episodes that were big disappointments this year. We had Pitch Perfect 2. Regular listeners will know whether they were kind of big fans of the first Pitch Perfect, but the second one uh, was a really lazy retread of the first and, and, and kind of had seriously diminishing returns. The Good Dinosaur is another one we've talked about as being uh, you know a bit of a disappointment, even though it's not actually that bad. It's just... For Pixar, a studio with incredibly high standards, it didn't quite cut it. Yeah, I mean, for me, some of the other ones would be things like While We're Young, yeah. which was a film that was disappointing uh, whilst watching it because it started so well mm-hmm. and it was so good for its first like half. And then just like you get into that second half and it becomes, as everyone has, has joked about ethics in documentary filmmaking, mm. that it becomes just unwatchably annoying. Mm. Suffragette was one that I was very disappointed by because it was a film that had so much that I wanted to like about it. You know, it's a film about a feminist issue that was made by women. You know, the the, the cast were, were women, all the important crew members were women. And then it was just boring and shit. <laughs> it was like, it was just such awful prestige bullshit filmmaking that wasted a really good cast and all this really good stuff. And then it was, it was just awful. And, and one just recently was uh, Hitchcock's Truffaut, the... Uh, Kemp Jones documentary, which was based, you know, telling a very interesting story about the relationship between Alfred Hitchcock and Francois Truffaut and, you know, his Truffaut's fandom of Hitchcock and their eventual collaboration, essentially, on Truffaut sat down and interviewed Hitchcock for several days and then assembled that into a seminal work of film uh, writing, uh, which was just really mediocre and merely okay when it Mm. should have been... It should have been, you know, a great celebration of an amazing collaboration of two great artists. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's now time that we have to do it, Ed. We have to talk about um, the worst films of the year. I suppose I should start by introducing myself. Mordecai. Still not sure whether anything will quite reach the depths of uh, Movie 43 uh, several years ago. But we can give it a go. Hollywood does try its very best every year to uh, upset us in as many cinematic ways as it possibly can amongst the shocking films we've seen this year i can confirm that 50 shades of gray 
is absolutely fucking horrible. I know that I'm not the target audience for that film, but I really am struggling to see who the target audience for that film is. I think it might be really shallow people um, <laughs> who have literally nothing going on in their lives. Because for those who haven't seen the film, uh, it's an incredibly unsexy tale of a rich, boring, friendless asshole who essentially begs for sex with a virgin, breaks into a house, kind of rapes her, uh, and she's still interested in this guy for some reason. It's fucking nuts. Uh, I compared it when I was watching it to uh, if the lead character may as well have been Dennis from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, <laughs> because he's that much of a creepy asshole, or a mixture of him and Johnson from Peep Show. Um, like, I could understand it if the person they'd cast or the character was in any way sexually alluring, but Jesus Christ, no. If, if you kind of go with that dude, you deserve everything you're going to get, and I'm fucking sorry, I don't care. Dreadful film. Jupiter Ascending, we mentioned, is a baffling slice of kind of Wachowski's nonsense, I guess. Um, parts of it are kind of very ambitious, uh, but don't really work, which is pretty much their MO nowadays, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's some parts of it that kind of work as weird comedy, such as that bit in the middle that is just basically a retread of Brazil, mm-hmm. with complete with Terry Gilliam cameo for no good reason. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it is it is baffling and, and terrible and weird. Yeah. Um, Chappie? Chappie was bad. Chappie was... I mean, we talked about Neil Blomkamp kind of ad nauseum on this show. Uh, he's made his film again, um, <laughs> and this time with really annoying actors in it. Yeah, that one was uh, fatally undermined by casting Antwoord as two of the main characters, two people who can't act and also wear shirts with their own names on, mm-hmm. uh, creating a weird metafictional, uh, a metaphysical quandary where you're thinking, oh, do Antwoord exist in this futuristic <laughs> version? Are they playing themselves in like 30 years' time? Um, very, very strange film that that was was really just awful and watchable trash. Mm-hmm. One of the particularly bad ones. A film that wasn't eligible for this because it doesn't come out in the UK yet, but um, I, I really, really hated was Tom Hooper's The Danish Girl, which is this kind of vapid, lifeless, kind of exploitative uh, version of a very interesting story about one of the kind of most first prominent uh, trans women uh, in, in Europe his- European history, one of the first to have the uh, gender reassignment surgery which should be great, but is undermined by the fact that everyone in it is so uh, desperate to win an award. And mm-hmm. that, that makes it feel... That just made me feel really, really queasy throughout. Mm, speaking of feeling queasy, uh, the film Get Hard with uh, Kevin Hart and Will Ferrell that came out at the start of the year, I'm sure they thought it was a good idea, and which uh, you know, the film is based around the fact that a, kind of a, a white-collar banker played by Will Ferrell goes down for some kind of, like, financial crime and he's really kind of uh, unsure of how to handle himself in prison so he speaks to the only black person he knows played by Kevin Hart uh, to get some advice of what it's like to be in prison with the joke being that Kevin Hart's never been in prison and never would go to prison and that is kind of on paper you think that might be funny but it's so kind of like forced and just homophobic throughout it's horrifyingly bad although there is one great big laugh where Kevin Hart's wife beats him up um, but other than that, that's a really wretched experience. Fantastic Four, we mentioned. I watched that the other day. I mean, that is awful. And that is that is a film you can clearly see has been tampered with. And when I say tampered, I mean kind of disemboweled. That has clearly got a lot missing. There's a, a bizarre 
change in the middle of the film where suddenly they're like, okay, let's do this now, which is really unusual. And the characters look different. They've got different haircuts. So there's obviously bits reshot. But even with Josh Trank's original vision, that was never going to work. That is, there was so po-faced and, and kind of gloomy and so relentlessly serious and it features a man who can stretch his arms really far, a giant rock monster, and a man who's on fire. And it's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, there are certain Marvel characters that you can, you know, darken a little bit, that you can make a bit more gritty and realistic. But there is there is only so much you can do with the Fantastic Four mm. <laughs> before. But, but they are just so inherently ridiculous as characters that you have to make it at least a little lighthearted and a little bit cartoony. And even if, like you say, if Josh Trank had been able to go through with his original vision, I don't think that would have resulted in a particularly good final product. Yeah. Um, and such a waste of four really good actors in those roles. Cause they're, you know, and everything else, they're kind of appealing screen princes, but this turns them into uh, grating douchebags, which is not what you want. So that leads us to the bottom of the pile, Ed. And for the very first time in Shot Reverse Shot History, we have a tie uh, for worst film. I didn't think we would see a film as bad as the film that I've chosen, but the one that you've put forward for selection is every bit as bad for different ways. We've got two. We've got one which is a bona fide stinker that is Mordecai, uh, a film that you will see propping up a lot of lists of this sort at the end of the year. The other one is Kingsman The Secret Service, which is a film that you and have, I have seen on plenty of best of lists this year, but we can assure you is absolutely vile. The the, the, the difference in kind of how bad they are is that Kingsman is, is reprehensible and boring and Mordecai is merely boring. Mm. <laughs> and But they're both also trying to be comedies and they're both really unfunny at what they're trying to be. Yeah, Mordecai, I don't know whose idea this was, but... They shouldn't have done that. That's a bad. That was a bad <laughs> idea in the 1970s. It's a very broad comedy that makes like Austin Powers at like fucking Manhattan. It's ridiculously kind of sweeping, broad characterizations of of stereotypes that didn't even exist 50 years ago. I'm not really sure who thought there was a huge public appetite for it. Now the, the kind of actors aren't committed to it and they kind of mug their way through it. You've got Johnny Depp, Gwyneth Paltrow, Paul Bettany, some other people that I've forgotten about, but it's just mystifying as to how at any point during the shoot, any point during pre-production at any point at all during that film's existence, someone turned to another person involved with it and thought, do you know what? This is a fucking brilliant idea. Yeah. There's a, a Jeff Goldblum has a very, very, very brief, appearance in it and mm. one of the things he does he's on the phone to someone and he says yes i'm very interested and i was like i've never believed anything less than what you're <laughs> saying right now yeah. you do not seem invested in anything that's going on you've shown up for two scenes you get killed in one of them and in the other you just talk on the phone and you have one line of dialogue while olivia munn looks on and mm. like there's there is nothing in in mordecai to really recommend it <laughs> for yeah. any reason although there is, like I was saying to you, there are little moments such as there's a scene which is terrible, but uh, it's a scene in which Olivia Munn, who's playing a kind of nymphomaniac daughter of Jeff Goldblum, asks Johnny Depp as uh, as Charlie Mordecai to feel her breasts. And after she asks, he just instantly kind of throws his glass of uh, vodka or whatever away and just immediately sets to feeling her up. And the ease with which... 
and the speed with which Johnny Depp throws that away reminds you that he is he used to be kind of one of the great physical actors of our age. Mm. And then the rest of the film reminds you that he is now just kind of a complete hack. Yeah. It's very unusual as well, the film, because it's, it's set in a kind of uh, almost timeless kind of era, but then there are like, explicit references to it being now. And a lot of them are to kind of prove that Charlie Mordecai is a man out of time. He's essentially Leslie Phillips has just wandered onto a, a new film. But then other bits just really jar and don't make sense. Or there's bits where it's a light-hearted kind of romp, and there's really uncomfortable sexual comedy, and then there's a kind of like uh, mild stereotype, like mildly racist banter with like Paul Whitehouse playing kind of Italian mechanic, which is <laughs> that did happen in this film. Um, and then it swings over to like kind of like just throwing f bombs out there, and it's just being really kind of hard R comedy. It's just like I don't. It's just it's such cognitive dissonance to watch. I was really confused. I was really upset. I wanted to cry. And then at the end, I wanted to kill myself. Yeah, I did feel... When you talk about it being incongruous, there is a moment when they flash back to show uh, Mordecai, his wife, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, and Ewan McGregor, who's like a MI6 or MI5 agent who is in love with Gwyneth Paltrow, shows them at college together and they're playing spin doctors on the radio, which is very, very jarring because it was like, oh yeah, I guess... <laughs> The characters would have been at university in the 90s, but they also are cavorting around like it's 1960, which I believe is when the uh, the original novels were written. But so there is a very odd and, uh, uh, you know, incongruity is the only word between the kind of film they're making and the kind of comedy being made and the time period where the film is actually set. Mm -hmm. And Kingsman, our joint winner, I suppose, of this award, is kind of offensive on many levels uh, on a political level for one i mean it's very troubling politically uh, on a kind of a, a, a kind of sexism level it's pretty much reprehensible and um on a violence level it's deeply uncomfortable yeah and it also you know we're talking about the violence that the scene that kind of gets cited as both the best and worst film scene in the film depending on who you talk to is the scene in the church in which Colin Firth under the and, and a group of uh, other people under the influence of a kind of uh, a gas, is it? Like some, something mm -hmm. that's been released that causes people to act violently, slaughters an entire church full of rabid, uh, homophobic, kind of right-wing Tea Party types. And it's it, it felt to me so incredibly cynical because they were clearly setting you up to really hate all of these people and so that you wouldn't, you kind of conceptually wouldn't mind the fact that Colin Firth is about to murder all of them in cold blood. But at the same time, you're then meant to think, oh, it's really terrible that he's killed all these people. It's like, it felt to me very cowardly. Mm. You know, if you really wanted to make out that this is a really terrible thing that's happened, he should have like shot up a mall or something and just killed a bunch of completely innocent people. The fact that they, <laughs> the, the fact that they, set that scene and they kind of clearly set it up as like, oh yeah, these are like the worst people and they all deserve to die. Mm. Really kind of spoke to the intellectual and moral cowardice on display throughout for me. Yeah. I mean, as well, this is twinned with the fact that Matthew Vaughan has a little bit of a history with being kind of right wing. And uh, there's a scene where Colin Firth is sat in his office and all his achievements uh, are behind him on the wall, illustrated by the front pages of newspapers. And they're all the sun. 
And I was like, <laughs> you don't want your achievements celebrated on the front page of The Sun, ever. That's horrible. And then it's like, it seems to have, there's this odd sense of Britishness that's evoked by things like that, where they're talking about, you know, perhaps a time when Britain was great, where just conveniently everyone's white and male. Mm. And it kind of just makes me feel really uncomfortable. And then even worse than that, the worst bit of the film is everyone who's seen the film knows what I'm going to say now. The bit towards the end of the film, he rescues a Swedish like prime minister or something. And like, obviously she's kind of, you know, model hot or whatever. And she says, I don't know how I could ever repay you. Why don't you just fuck me up the arse? And then <laughs> that's one thing. And then in the next scene, you see him do it. You're just like, what the, what? I mean, it's bad enough to make that joke anyway. It's quite another to follow it through to its like natural conclusion. It was just so jarring in a film that I'd kind of was hating anyway. I just I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. Yeah, I mean, it kind of is trying to take the cheekiness, I suppose, of the kind of Roger Moore era's Bond and then just kind of updating it for a more purient sensibility. Yeah, for the loaded generation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for your average FHM reader. Mm. Uh, and... It, that to me is is one of the things that really just kind of jarred about it is it does take something that was for its time kind of tongue in cheek and, and innuendo and then just removes all of the layers of irony and just presents it as, as kind of just as uh, matter as factly as possible and that just makes it for me just kind of really uh, reprehensible. Mm, absolutely, reprehensible uh, is the word I definitely use, um, and it goes quite like kind of is the final nail in the coffin for me to confirm that Matthew Vaughan is my least favourite director working today and the fact that he was even asked to do a Star Wars film I find I just fucking shudder and it says if you to be believed by IMDB's trivia page it says he turned turned it down because he wasn't happy with the amount of violence they wanted in it and he wasn't happy with having a female lead and I mean I don't think those things are true I think that's just internet tittle tattle but I could well believe that's true yeah, it, it does have the ring of truth just of his from his work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are the worst films of the year, everyone. Mordecai and Kingsman, The Secret Service. Mordecai is on Netflix. So I recommend you watch it because it's kind of fun because it's so awful, whereas Kingsman is deeply, deeply depressing experience. Before we get to our top ten films of the year, I'm just going to have a quick word with you about television. And do you think that? Rambling on the internet will change anything. Hello, friend. Hello, friend. That's Lane. I would like you to begin arrangements for Dr. Hannibal Lecter to be eaten alive. If I ever do cheat on you, it's going to be a cash transaction with a guaranteed ejaculation, after which she immediately leaves so I can ponder suicide because of how guilty I feel. Aww. Don't forget me, baby. Now, we talked, we did a whole episode about peak television earlier. This year, when we talked about the fact that somehow we seem to be in a situation where there is now too much excellent television to watch and no one can keep up with it, even the people who are paid to do so. And it really is that, isn't it, Ed? We have had a year in which I look back at the shows that have been on and the ones that have been talked about as being the best, and I haven't even made a dent on them. Yeah, I mean, I was just looking at the list earlier of like, oh, what what were the kind of the great shows that debuted this year? And that filled a page. And I was like, okay, what are the really good shows that continue to do good work this year? And that filled a page. And it does, it is really a, a glut of quality stuff. And as much television as I do watch, I still feel like there's about 
20 different shows that I just haven't had a chance to check up with yet, yeah. which everyone just says, oh, you simply must watch this. Mm. Well, to give the listeners at home, uh, I've compiled a quick list. And uh, hold on to your hats, because this will be pretty quick. But this is just a sample of what was on television this year. We had uh, Daredevil, Wet Hot American Summer, Broad City, Veep, Silicon Valley, Game of Thrones, Mad Men, Fargo, Parks and Recreation, Master of None, Transparent, Red Oaks, This is England, Catastrophe, Peep Show, Toast of London, Unbreakable, Kimmy Schmidt, Rectify, Girls, Walking Dead, Bob's Burgers, Jessica Jones, Documentary Now, Inside Amy Schumer, Orange is the New Black, Bloodline, The Jinx, Halt and Catch Fire, Looking, Nathan for You, Rick and Morty, Review, the Americans, The Leftovers, Better Call Saul, Hannibal, Show Me a Hero, Sense8, Bojack Horseman, You're the Worst, Banshee, The Flash, and Wolf Hall. Now, the last paragraph of that from Bloodlines Wolf Hall are the films I didn't get to see this year. <laughs> and that's absurd. Yeah, I mean, that is a truly staggering amount of material. <laughs> uh, some of those shows, uh, you know, were noose, but also I think the, the thing that's really staggering is it there are shows out there that continue to be amazing and just don't show any signs of shop, of stopping like Veep and Broad City and Review and uh, and you know there's all these great shows even you know like we lost some great shows this year like Mad Men Parks and Recreation The Daily Show with Jon Stewart or although obviously that that is uh, continuing on in a new form Crawl Show Justified The Soup you know even though we're getting rid of shows because mm-hmm. they are they are in many cases just reaching their natural end and the creators want to go on to do other things which is itself a new development. Uh, Todd Vanderworth, the TV editor at uh, Vox.com, said in a tweet recently that uh, something that I thought was very, very interesting, which is that he's now more surprised when a low-rated show gets cancelled than when he gets hears that it's renewed. Because that's kind of the, the situation we're in now, where shows just continue on. They don't need to get a huge amount of viewers, but if they get really strong critical uh, uh, critical support they will just kind of continue on and on and on. And that is a a new and exciting development. Mm, Absolutely. Whilst we can't talk forever about the shows that we've enjoyed, we thought we'd give you a taste of kind of more specifically what we've enjoyed and and our favourite episodes of television this year. Um, I'll get the ball rolling uh, with my favourite episode of the year, which I think you're a big fan of as well, was the Indians on TV episode of Master of None, Mm, which dealt with the fact that that kind of went around the idea that Aziz Ansari's character was pitching a show to television and they didn't want two Indian characters on the show. And the idea of why also twinned with the fact that a lot of people don't know that Fisher Stevens <laughs> isn't Indian um, and the character he plays in Short Circuit 2 is uh, kind of a brown face makeup uh, and a very, very broad, very culturally insensitive portrayal. That episode, I mean, that show anyway, Master of None, was a was an absolute treat this year. I didn't really expect to be talking about it at the end of the year. It was one of the best shows. But that's a real highlight from that show. It it kind of has everything that makes that show good. Uh, it's a, it has an example of it in it. It's very kind of uh, smart and knowing, very subversive, not afraid to take uh, a chance kind of structurally, um, and has perhaps the best final line of a TV episode uh, this year, <laughs> which was, is Mindy Kaling real? Which... <laughs> It's very funny if you've seen it. But yeah, that, that's a really great episode of a great series. One of the shows that I had great hopes for this year and which really lived up to all my expectations was Better Call Saul, the Breaking Bad spin-offs, prequels, but also kind of sequel because the opening scene definitely takes place after the finale of, of that original show. And the episode that really kind of crystallised what a great show that was was the episode 5 
which dealt with the backstory of the character of Mike, played by Jonathan Banks, and was about his his career as a police officer and his relationship with his son. And it was a uh, a masterclass from Jonathan Banks, who has always been a strong presence on that show, but uh, was always maybe served it more for comedic purposes and every so often got to be a little more dramatic. But on that one, really got to delve into the kind of the deep well of pain at the heart of that character in a way that... Uh, was was beautifully realised, uh, and and just kind of was fulfilled all of the the promise that that show had, had demonstrated in the four, five episodes leading up to it. Mm. My last pick for for kind of TV episode of the year was the episode A Titten and a Heron from uh, Orange Is the New Black season three, which centres around uh, the character of uh, Pensatucky, who is a character we hate from pretty much the moment we meet her because she's pretty goddamn horrible. But in season three, the kind of edges begin to soften. And when we get her episode and we find out what's been going on in her life, you realise that she, like everyone else in that prison, has a pretty kind of gruelling and heartbreaking story. And hers uh, features an absolute tour de force of acting uh, from the actor who plays her, whose name I forget, that's dreadful. But uh, kind of a great thing in the sense that a character that you have kind of been taught to hate that you think is perhaps a bit of a caricature when you first meet her turns out to be kind of one of the most well-rounded and kind of has kind of pools of depth in in there which is something that when you spend three seasons uh working towards you can you can do those kind of things which is why we're very lucky to live in this peak tv era yeah uh what my uh final choice for for great episode was from a show that you and I both both really liked and that uh, we talked we described as maybe the most niche show imaginable mm. this documentary now uh, mm-hmm. the two part finale about the blue jean committee which was a fake documentary about this band that had, had a hit with a song called Catalina Breeze was uh, up there with that thing you do as one of the best fake songs ever written for for a, a piece of media just kind of r- lovely bit of yacht rock from the 70s and it was such a brilliant realization of the depiction of a band that had fallen apart had huge success and fallen apart and its two members had drifted off in different directions and it was really funny but it was so good that after a few days after watching it I was trying I was thinking about something else and I was trying to remember an example of like a documentary about a band kind of reuniting years later and it being really awkward and for for several minutes I was remembering the episode of documentary now as if it had been a real documentary <laughs> just thinking that was really moving with that it's like oh wait that wasn't fucking real <laughs> that was a, uh, and I think that one of the things this year that was was very very apparent particularly for that was just how great an actor Bill Hader is Mm. because he was showing up in films and stuff like Trainwreck, but also just doing all of this stuff on TV where he would show up and, in the case of Documentary Now, every week in- investing these characters with, you know, uh, a real sense of reality, the sense that these are real people going through a real thing that's happened to be caught by the camera. And it, it uh, made me appreciate just how fantastic a comic actor he actually is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So time has come to reveal our shot reverse shot top 10 films of 2015 we've uh, kind of voted on these we had a long list and we whittled it down and we've kind of uh, assigned points values it's very complicated um, but I assure you the results have been checked and they're correct 
But what is surprising uh, about this year, uh, like we said, it's been a very strong year, is just the sheer amount of films that we couldn't squeeze in to our top ten and, and some of the films that didn't make the cut. I'm going to list now, and I think we've got ten here, which kind of could, on any other year, have been our top ten and would have been hugely satisfied with them. Uh, that's how strong this year was. But yeah, so what didn't make the cut? Uh, Tangerine didn't make it. Uh, Girlhood didn't make it. Uh, Straight Out of Compton, Trainwreck, uh, Dope, Love and Mercy, Inherent Vice didn't make it, uh, The Look of Silence, uh, Black Hat, Episode 7, spoilers guys, that's not going to make it. They all didn't make the cut of our 10 films, and there's some really good films in there, isn't there, Ed? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a fantastic list. Some some favourites from both of our lists uh, that just couldn't quite, got squeezed out by other ones that were a little bit better, but, you know, I, I would recommend any of those films, particularly Girlhood, which is a film that I think maybe isn't getting as much attention as it deserves, possibly because it came out in 2014 in some places and not in others. And so that that tends to uh, obscure when films are for consideration, but that is a, a beautiful and, and fantastic uh, French film, uh, which has the best use of Rihanna you will ever see in a, a film, I feel. Mm, yeah, that's that's one of my favourite scenes of the entire year. The Look of Silence, we've, we've talked about its, its predecessor, uh, the act of killing before the look of silence kind of builds on that story and kind of really doesn't offer much hope uh, in that. It's <laughs> a really depressing film, but just so powerful. And as a as a kind of a two piece, those two things, uh, those two films go you know remarkably well together. Um, a hugely enjoyed Trainwreck, uh, like you said about Bill Hader, Amy Schumer. It's been a great year for her. She has had you know a lot of success this year and. It all kind of came to head with Trainwreck, which is a really fun film, you know, really funny and features the un kind of, well, yeah, I didn't really think that we'd say the best comic pairing of the year would be Bill Hader and LeBron James, um, <laughs> but I could watch them all day. Yeah, I, I think that the great tragedy of the film is that there was no room for a scene between LeBron James and John Cena, yeah. <laughs> who yeah. also showed up and... <laughs> did absolutely fantastic work. Everyone mm. talks about the the scene in the uh, the the theatre where he talks about being if Malt Warburg, Warburg ate Malt Warburg, <laughs> but his um, his sex scene with Amy Schumer where he's trying to talk dirty is one of the most kind of sustained moments uh, <laughs> scenes of comic brilliance I've seen all year. Yeah, Judd Apatow still can't edit his films down to reasonable length. No, or or handle abrupt shifts in tone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yeah, just a quick note to both Straight Outta Compton and Love and Mercy, the the two films this year that really established Paul Giamatti as the go to guy for asshole music managers. Yeah, the early promise he showed in Private Parts was that the one where he played Howard Stern's band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the early promise he showed in that film as as just kind of a sleazy, <laughs> a sleazy supporting manager figure really paid off this year. Mm, mm, absolutely um inherent vice i thought would be a very strong contender to make this list but for me i don't know how you felt about it ed but ultimately it's a film that i found very easy to admire but quite hard to love yeah i mean i think it's a film that will probably grow in after repeated viewings much as the master did although the master was kind of more uh apparently great from the beginning than than inherent vice but that, that is a film that i was hugely excited to see it lived up to my expectations but ultimately I think it came out too early in the year over here for me to really, or, or late in last year for me to really uh, consider it as part of this year's crop. Mm. But it was still a, a fine addition to Paul Thomas Anderson's oeuvre. Although I think of the uh, of the two films he put out this year, I maybe slightly preferred Junan. 
Yeah, yeah, I'd probably go along with that. It had a bit more warmth to it and probably more likely to kind of walk away from that one feeling like, you know, I'd had the PTA experience. So, Mm -hmm. cool. Let's get into the top 10 films of the year as voted for by myself and Ed. At number 10, which is where we begin our countdown, because it would be really anticlimactic to do it the other way around. Number 10 is the film Ex Machina. I told you, you're wasting your time talking to us. However, you would not be wasting your time if you were dancing with us. This was a, a nice little surprise, Ed. Yes, the directing debut of Alex Garland, who has been a dab hand at science fiction for a few years now, obviously wrote uh, 28 Days Later with Danny Boyle and Sunshine and also uh, Dread. So he's someone who had been had his hand at a sort of more big budgety action films, but he here he directed a modestly budgeted film with very big ideas about uh, artificial intelligence and the nature of humanity, anchored by a trio of performances by uh, The Force Awakens uh, highlights Donald Gleeson and Oscar Isaac and Alicia Vikander, who had something of a, a breakout year, appearing in just a, a huge amount of stuff. She was very much the Jessica Chastain of this year. Mm, mm. It was very surprising that it was had so many big ideas, like you say, in what's essentially a chamber piece. They very mm. rarely leave the confines of Oscar Isaac's character's uh, kind of upscale kind of technological prison i guess that he lives in yeah which is actually a real hotel that you can go and stay in i don't which... want to stay there i'll put no, it out there now. it's creepy yeah. it's creepy as hell mm. but it is a very uh, a great location just in the middle of nowhere uh the story being uh one in which oscar isaac who plays this uh billionaire who has created these artificial uh these this artificial intelligence and he gets a basically an it consultant who wins a, a lottery to come and uh, administer a Turing test to see if the intelligence that he's created has genuine consciousness. And then the ways in which that uh, this kind of beautiful, uh, uh, this beautiful uh, mechanical creature who looks like a woman uh, maybe manipulates him or how much his own ideas about uh, sexuality and gender kind of play into their interaction. Mm, Absolutely. Um, I know that, you know, I don't want to boil the film down to one scene, which you could take out of context. Uh, but the scene in which uh, Oscar Isaac and one of his other kind of sex bots, uh, Disco Dance, um, really did test the the limits of my man crush on Oscar Isaac. I very <laughs> nearly attacked the screen at that point. Yeah, it's, his, his moves are quite something in that. And I think it's a shame that they couldn't find room for that in episode seven. But again, Ryan Johnson, alongside putting in John Candy as a force ghost, if you want to just have like a 10 minute scene of nothing but Oscar Isaac dancing in episode eight, then uh, the the campaign for that starts here. Yeah, we're all for that. So yeah, first entry on our, on our list, Ex Machina. Coming in at number nine is a film that perhaps some of you won't have heard of. It's Queen of Earth. Everything feels so close to me. The good and the bad. Well, things aren't so bad right now, though. No. You're absolutely right, Virginia. They're worse. 
No, I say won't have heard of. I'm not saying it like I'm a fucking hipster, like, oh, this is a great film. You probably haven't heard of it. But it kind of just came and went very quickly. Yeah, it was a film that had a very small release over here that didn't really make much of an impact. And only, I think, people are only starting to catch up with it now because it was added to, I think, US Netflix fairly recently. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, which is a shame that it didn't kind of have the big impact, particularly because it is directed and written by Alex Ross Perry, who made, again, one of our favourite films of last year, Listen Up, Philip. And, you know, you would have hoped that the uh, praise that we ladled onto that film would have led people to seek out his follow-up. But I think uh, people are just taking their time in, in really kind of catching up to what he is offering. Yeah, yeah. It's a very different film, as opposed to Listen Up Philip, it's very much a kind of Polanski-influenced kind of investigation of a woman who's kind of slowly losing her mind. But then is she? It's very kind of claustrophobic. She's kind of staying with a friend played by uh, Catherine Waterston, who's had a very big year this year. And, yeah, you're kind of not really sure what's real and what isn't. It's very kind of disjointed the way it's edited, but it's, it's deeply kind of like unnerving the way it's kind of constructed, the way it's shot, the way it's edited, the way things are framed. Just kind of, it's 90 odd minutes of unease is the way that I felt about about when I watched it. Yeah, with the, again, similar to Ex Machina, very limited scope. It takes place pretty much entirely at that cabin, except on, you know, the only difference is what time period it's set, because they will have occasional flashbacks, but they, again, are at different times these two women have stayed at this cabin. Mm-hmm. And I think the the sense of claustrophobia, with the only intrusions being by uh, the the guy from Almost Famous, who shows up every so often. Yeah. Um, Patrick. He appears, yeah, Patrick Fugit. He, he appears yeah. to be kind of a, an antagonist, but you're not sure why. He's like, is, is everyone else seeing what Elizabeth Moss is seeing. It's a film that really kind of kind of plays with your mind. And it, it really does a wonderful job of investigating a particular kind of friendship, uh, not necessarily just a female friendship, but, you know, a particular kind of friendship where two people are coming from different, maybe, class backgrounds. One of them has more money than the other, uh, where they come from different... Uh, where, where one of them has a lot of money and doesn't feel the need to work. The other one kind of comes from... Uh, is the daughter of a of a famous artist and wants to be an artist herself, but is kind of overshadowed by her father and has fallen into an administrative role. And the the conflict that arises from these two people at different levels of success in their life and how over time those tensions kind of rise and fall. And I think it, it does examine their shifting that their shifting dynamic over time in a, in a way which is uh, incredibly incisive and also, as you say, deeply unnerving. Mm. And Elizabeth Moss, she was really great in a supporting role in, in Listen Up, Philip. Uh, but this, she is practically in every single scene and kind of owns that film. Yeah, I think, I hope that this is a pattern that Alex Ross Perry follows where whoever is the standout supporting character in his in one film gets to be the lead in the next because I really would see, want to see what he can do with Catherine Waterston as a lead in the following one. Because as good and as great as Elizabeth Moss is in this, and she, she again is someone who had a fantastic year you know, she had a, a really fantastic final season on Mad Men, including maybe one of the greatest gif-worthy moments of the year in her walking down the corridor in her, mm-hmm. her sunglasses and smoking a cigarette. Uh, I think that uh, Catherine Waterston was the one that really impressed me in this. As good as she was in Inherent Vice, she was just kind of out of, the wor- out of this world in uh, Queen of Earth. And between them, they're, they're two of my favourite female performances of the year. Mm. 
Absolutely. Now we're going to go to the complete opposite of uh, female performances and talk about a film that, like, we just fucking loved straight up. Uh, number eight on our list is Magic Mike XXL. Look, I love you guys. This trip has been ridiculous and amazing. So please do not make me give the whole, it's not about how we go out there and do it. It's about getting to go out there and do it together speech that I just gave you. What are you? You're not a fireman. I'm a male entertainer. Oh, yeah. What are we? Male Fuck. entertainers. That's right. Come on. Good idea. Hey, 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 hey. Hold that up. Hold that up. Look, it's not bro time. It's show time. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Ready. ready. All right. Come on. Let's do this. Now, the first Magic Mike uh, made an appearance on our list a couple of years ago. Um, and it was a film, uh, kind of quite a downbeat film about being kind of in your 20s and not really know what you're doing with your life and kind of having to do something you don't particularly enjoy doing and felt a little bit kind of heavy at times and a bit bleak, but at the same time having some kind of amazing physical bits of dancing in and you know we're drawn to how magnetic a screen presence Channing Tatum is Magic Mike XXL is just a big fucking party movie yeah a, a lot of people have said this but it's very true it is a film with maybe the lowest stakes of any <laughs> film I've ever seen yeah <laughs> because it is essentially just a case where all of the villains from the previous film uh, Dallas and the kid played by uh, Matthew McConaughey and Alex Pettifer don't return so there's no villains the stakes of it are that the Kings of Tampa decide that they're going to have one big fun party weekend where they go to a stripper conference in Myrtle mm-hmm. Beach. Um, and they go there not because like they need the money, otherwise the club will close down. They just go there because it'd be a really fun thing to do. Mm-hmm. And they just go through all of these various uh, small episodes in which they, okay, they encounter a slight obstacle which they over- overcome either through sheer charm or the power of dance <laughs> and uh it's just it's just a fantastic fun time it doesn't have the uh any of the elements of the first film which were sent was in in part about the difficulty of surviving in a post-recession world it is just a case of saying hey sometimes it's just really really fun to get together with your friends get really drunk and dance mm, and get genuine on uh, yeah and you know crack that out the scene in which uh, I forget the character's name, but he dances to uh, "I Want It That Way" in the in the supermarket. Yeah, you're thinking of Joe Manganiello's character, Big Dick Richie. Oh, I don't know why I didn't remember his name, um, <laughs> but that's a great moment, a really fun moment, and it's all driven by character. It's all really fun, and at the same time, we get to see a dance number to Nine Inch Nails, uh, which <laughs> I didn't didn't ever think I would see, and now I don't know how I lived without it. Mm, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, it is, it is a, a joyful and funny and delightful film that didn't do as well as the first one, I think because people who expected this film from the first one felt kind of burned by how much of a bummer the first Magic Mike was. Yeah. Uh, so the the fact that they got exactly what they probably wanted the first time this time around probably uh, hurt its chances, but I think it's one that people should really seek out because it is just a, a, a fantastically fun good time. Yeah, there's a great bit where they get sidetracked by going to a girl they meet, they go to her house, and her house, uh, she lives with her parents, and her parents are having 
a party and her mum is Andy McDowell. Mm-hmm. And what you get is just what could be a little play on its own, this bit where a group of male strippers are talking to a group of middle-aged women about kind of, uh, you know, lost opportunities and, and lost love. And there's a bit where the character called Tarzan tells a story about how the one that got away and he talks about it and it just goes quiet for a second. And then I don't know who says it, but one of the characters says, oh man, I think a bit of my soul just died. <laughs> it's just like the most perfectly kind of way to undercut what in another film or kind of less capable hands would have been a really trite moment. Yeah, it is a it, every every scene in the film is a lot of fun. Uh, particularly like the 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 climax where they have all of these new routines that they've worked out, which just get kind of bigger and bigger and crazier. Although the, the film does misstep slightly in that it doesn't end with the nine inch nails number mm. because they have to they have to uh, end with obviously with uh, Channing Tatum doing something. Yeah. But like that, magic, there's there's nowhere to go after you've seen. <laughs> uh, Joe Manginello kind of drape himself across a kind of a wire frame <laughs> to uh, to close up by Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But a great fun movie and one that everyone should check out. Number seven on our list. We talked earlier in the show about how much of a disappointment while we're young was because we got hugely excited that Noah Baumbach would have two films out this year. Um, but when the first one turned out to be less than what was expected. Uh, how pleased we were to see Mistress America uh, enter our chart number seven. People are always taking my shit. My ex-friend and nemesis, Mamie Claire, stole my ideas and my fiancé. Shit. She took this t-shirt idea that I had, started a company, fucking sold it to J. Cruz, so there's that. She's one of those people that doesn't have any good ideas for her own life, so she just steals all of mine. And then she literally stole my cats. Yes, a film that trades not quite so heavily on the charm of... Greta Gerwig as it did for Frances Ha. We've got another actress who takes centre stage. But yeah, she is really the driving force again behind the film. A film which starts out as a kind of Frances Ha light story about kind of not knowing where you're going, what direction you're going in life or who you are. But then turns into what can only be described as one of the greatest farces ever written. Yeah, I described it as the best screwball comedy in decades, Mm. which is basically what it is. The first half... You know, it's kind of got this, uh, slightly, like Francis Har, it has this very new wave style editing where it's cutting between a lot of different scenes all the time. And it's really just kind of doing this impressionistic uh, creation of these two characters played by Greta Gerwig and Lola Kirk. And it's really fun and entertaining. And there's this, there's these nice kind of sly uh, satirical quality to it about people who are, you know, in their 30s and are very good at pretending that they have their lives together but really don't, which I think a lot of people are familiar with, people who are who have great dreams but really no way of uh, of making those dreams happen, uh, played by Greta Gerwig, doing a kind of a great, uh, slightly abrasive but very charming role. But then halfway through the film, the cast all migrate to a house in the kind of the country, and uh, once the location settles down, it becomes about throwing all of these disparate characters into a single location, it is just, it is like a great stage play mm. that is being acted out by all these characters with overlapping dialogue, overlapping conversations, um, you know, just all of these plots just bouncing off of each other. And it is just, it's really, really a joyous, uh, a joyous watch. Mm. A, a kind of neighbour who just wanders in and he's got a whole backstory that kind of comes out while they're doing it and then they all end up reading her short story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's just so beautifully played. You don't see that kind of energetic comedy anymore, do you? It's a, it's a real throwback. 
Yeah, it does feel much more structured and much more controlled than a lot of comedy. I think that the the trend towards more improvisational stuff has resulted in a lot of great work and has, uh, I think, allowed a lot of really great talents to emerge. People who maybe wouldn't have fit into more traditional forms of comedy if they were restricted by having to just say the lines. But I think that this demonstrated the, the particular kind of uh, beauty and joy that can be found in really great actors delivering a really great script in a really witty and uh, intelligent way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so tightly written and tightly performed. It's an absolute joy to watch. So yes, Faith Restored in Mr. Baumbach with Mistress America. Number six on our list, a film that just missed the cut for last year because it came out in America last year. But over here, it arrived in January. We're talking about Whiplash. Everybody remember, Lincoln Center and its ilk use these competitions to decide who they're interested in and who they're not. And I am not going to have my reputation in that department tarnished by a bunch of fucking limp dick sour note flatter than their girlfriend's flexible tempo dipshits. Got it? One more thing. Eugene, give me that. If I ever find one of these lying around again, I swear to fucking God, I will stop being so polite. Get the fuck out of my sight before I demolish you. Uh, kind of a big crossover hit, kind of a, a breakout hit for the, the director and, and kind of everyone else. But yeah, hugely fun film. Kind of goes beyond the initial premise of it's Rocky, but with drumming to being something that's like super, super, super intense, but also very surprising. Yeah, I think uh, it was the film that really made me pay attention to Miles Teller. Mm-hmm. In you know he's someone who had shown up in a few roles over the previous couple of years, stuff like the Spectacular Now or the Divergent series, which is the sort of thing that you know. Much as I don't hold Twilight against Christian Stewart, I don't hold the Divergent series against Miles Teller. You know, if you're young and you get given the chance to be in multiple films in a series, you know, you might as well take it. But he uh, is is really really good as a kind of young cocky drummer who thinks that he can. He has what it takes to be a part of this incredibly intense orchestra, uh, but the obviously the, the standout performer to the extent that he won the Oscar is J.K. Simmons, who is just this incredibly imposing, uh, vaguely fascist <laughs> figure <laughs> headlining this uh, this orchestra. And I feel like uh, as good as their interplay is, it's, it's kind of hard not to be overwhelmed by the work that Simmons does in it. Mm. A film, we won't talk about it too much, it's been talked about all year, um, but a film which the last five minutes are truly breathtaking. Yeah, that does kind of put the the idea to it of being in some ways kind of like Rocky with jazz drumming, where it is a case of watching someone be put into an adverse situation and just trying to kind of power through it and, and delivering in a way that leaves them kind of bloodied and sweating in uh, in a way that is kind of believe, looks believably... Uh, believably a draining mm. and miles teller did he is a kind of a trained jazz drummer and did an awful lot of it himself and it's uh really impressive when you see kind of someone that committed yeah and also i think it's it's worth pointing out that it is one of and i think it, it may have won this this oscar as well one of the best edited movies i've seen in a while mm. uh, a large part of why it works is just the sheer intensity of the way it's constructed and, and that really comes through in all of the all of the musical performances, particularly that finale, but any time that they need to have like invest those with kind of energy, the the way in which the shots have just edited together really creates that that power that you really need to sell what could be maybe a slightly too esoteric subject. Mm, absolutely, whiplash. You know, number six, yeah. So we're in the top half uh, now of our top ten with the business end of uh, of things, and at number five. 
is a film that gave us pure joy from start to finish, and I'm pretty sure we shed a tear over it too. Uh, we're talking about Inside Out. Dad just left us. Oh, he doesn't love us anymore. That's sad. I, I should drive, right? Joy, what are you doing? Uh, just uh, give me one second. Um, you know what I've realized? Riley hasn't had lunch, remember? Hey, I saw a pizza place down the street. Maybe we could try that. Pizza sounds delicious. Pizza? pizza. Yes, pizza. <laughs> right That's good. What the heck is that? Who puts broccoli on pizza? That's it. I'm done. Congratulations, San Francisco. You've ruined pizza. First the Hawaiians, and now you. Immediately as I stepped out of the cinema, I turned to my wife and I said, straight up, no question, that is top-tier Pixar. Agree mm. or disagree? Oh, yeah, it is. It's definitely in the top five for me. Uh, I'm not sure if I'd put it above any of the Toy Stories, but it's definitely in that same area, that the area of, you know, your ups and your wallies and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It is a film that uh, takes there the, the idea of, you know, stuff like Wall-E or, or Up, where the emotional stuff is all kind of crammed into the first couple of minutes and then says, why don't we just make you cry for the duration? <laughs> just constant tears, constant beautiful haunting Michael Giacchino music uh, and just like one of the most, two two of the most heartbreaking vocal performances you'll ever hear from Phyllis Smith and Amy Poehler and also uh, Richard Kind, although that kind of only really comes through towards the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just this kind of wonderfully imaginative approach to a young girl's uh, mental and emotional state. It's the kind of idea that I would suspect that people at Pixar, and especially Disney, would have thought was quite risky. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, they pulled it off so easily that it kind of doesn't even look like anything close to a risk. Yeah, I mean, it is. It, it's kind of a very simple idea: the idea of personifying or anthropomorphizing the emotions in this girl Riley's head, but it's the sort of thing where people may not be able to get on board with the, the simplicity of how the emotions are depicted, the effect that there are only five emotions or the, um, the stakes of it all, because it could be very easy to write it off as having so little stakes because it is just about these characters trying to go through a, a girl's mind and trying to keep things in balance. But I feel like the, the what, what really works for me about the film is how well it makes those stakes really important the idea of uh the imbalance in this girl and, and her unwillingness or inability to uh, allow sadness to have its proper place mm-hmm. represented by the character of joy who doesn't seem to believe that sadness is an important part of life uh but the film obviously argues that it actually is incredibly important for people to feel sad at times mm-hmm. because some things are sad like moving house and things like that uh and it's it's important to let those emotions out and i feel like the film uh, does a wonderful job of making the possibility of Riley running away from home or uh, the the characters not being able to kind of keep her mental landscape kind of intact, uh, it, it make it an incredibly central and vital part of the story. Mm. The, my, the most joy I got out of that film, uh, pun intended, was the fact that I never thought I'd see Lewis Black in a children's film. <laughs> and he is brilliant in it. He is very, very funny. His... Uh, Delivery of uh, saying that San Francisco has ruined pizza <laughs> is 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 brilliantly him, you know, particularly in terms of his persona from his many appearances on the Daily Show. It definitely kind of fit within what he does. He does very well. 
Yeah, yeah. And much like the Noah Baumbach thing, we had two Pixar films here, one was disappointing and one was great. So it's good to see that they can deliver even when the chips are down. At number four, we have Carol. What do you do on Sundays? Nothing in particular. What do you do? Nothing lately. Maybe you'd like to come visit me sometime. You're welcome to. At least there's some pretty country around where I live. Would you like to come visit me this Sunday? Yes. A film which is quite unassuming, I guess, but then that's Todd Haynes for you. But turns out to be uh, one of the kind of most rich and kind of complex character films of the year. Yeah, it's a wonderful adaptation of the novel by Patricia Highsmith that does, in some ways, it's it's very similar to what he did with Far From Heaven, where it is a film that is very steeped in 50s melodrama and uh, harkens back to kind of, you know, your Douglas Sirk films and things like that, but which is perhaps not quite as arch in its pastiche. It's a little more uh, straightforward in its depiction of the character's emotions. And, and while... Uh, I think it's maybe a little colder than Far From Heaven as a result. Like, uh, it still is a kind of beautiful depiction of this relationship between these two women and the very tentative they, steps they eventually take towards uh, being able to express their, their, their feelings towards each other. Mm. And it's one of those things that in, you know, lesser hands uh, or, you know, someone else, you know, there would have been a lot of that kind of, ah, hmm lesbians you know <laughs> but there's none of that it's just re- really refreshing to see a, a film in which uh, that's not even really a consideration even in a film set at a time when that kind of caper was frowned upon uh, and you know possibly illegal it really isn't pushed that hard which is really nice to see because it could have been a stick with which to beat the characters with yeah i mean the the thing that I, th- I think is really great is it depicts the relationship as this very kind of natural thing, like any romantic relationship, kind of small steps of noticing each other, of of spending time with each other and eventually being able to admit feelings and whatnot. But then uh, the way in which society encroaches upon those, that, those, that relationship is kind of kept as a separate thing in terms of Carol's relationship with her husband, played by Carl Chandler, uh, who's, who's really, really great in a supporting role, and the way in which he tries to use that as a way of uh, gaining the upper hand in, in, you know, separating from her. I feel like it does a really good job of making sure that the relationship is not, doesn't feel kind of completely secondary to all of the legal uh, kind of haranguing going on. Mm. And the two female leads, absolutely kind of stellar. We're going to see the uncomfortable Kind of, I presume we're going to see the kind of uncomfortable, awkward separation of one into best actress and one into best supporting, even though there really isn't that much between them. Yeah, it's very much a situation where there are just two leads, but because uh, Kate Blanchett is the bigger name than Rooney Mara, and she is, you know, her name is in the title. I think that they will probably push for that one to be lead and Rooney Mara into supporting, even though I think that there are strong arguments that Rooney Mara is, you know, she has more of a story really than than Kate Blanchett does. Mm. Um, and I think it, it's a shame that you get into those kind of bullshit uh, awards rules things because it does diminish, even in a small way, you know, what what great work Rui does in the film. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a great film. I would highly recommend it, which is obviously a stupid thing to say because we're at number four on our list and of course we recommend it. Number three is uh, the film Phoenix. 
which I haven't actually seen that much about in terms of other people talking about it, but we sure liked it. Yeah, that was one that came in quite late in the year for me. It was a film that I think a few people had mentioned because Nina Hoss had got a really good uh had got really good reviews for it and there was there was talk about her being a possible Dark Horse Oscar nominee, but I hadn't really heard much in terms of you know what the film was about it was just a title that was kind of floating out there so when it got added to uh, us netflix in the last in, in december i thought no i'm gonna try and check this out and uh, it was i i went in with no real expectations for it and i was really really blown away by it yeah essentially yeah it's core it's uh, a film noir uh, about a holocaust survivor who is terribly scarred um and has to have kind of reconstructive surgery um, she tracks down her husband, who she hasn't seen since she was kind of interned, um, and uh, she meets him, and he doesn't recognise her, but he tries to kind of uh, get her along on a plot to pose as his wife, um, returning from uh, the, the death camp in order to claim her inheritance. Um, and it is kind of uh, stylistically a film noir, uh, thematically a film noir, um, but it's definitely kind of its own thing. It's got this really weird quality to it, which is kind of kind of hard to put your finger on. Yeah, I think the the metaphysical le- levels of performance in it is is the thing that really sets it apart. Because like, when you try and break it down, it's about a woman pretending to be herself mm. uh, because her husband doesn't realise who she is, and the way in which that messes with her mind. Because you know, it, that, how does she pretend to be herself? You know, how does she know what the essence of herself is to play for this man? But also there's the the mystery element to it of her wondering, you know, did her husband betray her in some way because he was not Jewish and obviously didn't go to the camps and he's kind of built a small but separate life for himself since uh, since the war ended and everything like that. And I think it, what what I really like about it is it is kind of like a an interesting twist on the central premise of Vertigo. Mm. except instead of being from the perspective of the Jimmy Stewart character, it's from the, the female perspective. Yeah, that's definitely what kind of came into my mind there. It doesn't quite delve into that weird psychosexual dimension that that does, but it gets pretty kind of confusing. Like, for instance, where she kind of uh, dresses up exactly as she would with her makeup and her clothes and everything, and she he comes home and she steps out into the light, expecting this to be the moment that he like finally recognise of who she is and kind of says, oh, this was a terrible plan and they kind of uh, forge a new life together. But he's like, oh yeah, your walk's wrong. Um, <laughs> she would never wear a hair like that. And yeah, kind of, you know, I do not exaggerate. The final scene of this film is just absolutely amazing. Kind of, because she's a singer, isn't she? Before she goes, uh, she's kind of taken to, to kind of Auschwitz or whatever. Uh, she's a singer but we never actually hear her sing and we finally do in the, in, in the kind of the finale of the film and it has an absolutely devastating emotional impact as um, the kind of implications of what her singing voice being heard means to the people in the scene. Yeah, and particularly the, the acting in that, aside from the singing, like the way she sings and the way that she imbues the song with so much emotion and the reactions to the people in the room. Mm. Uh, make it just one of the kind of masterclasses in, in what just reacting can do for, yes. in, in terms of, uh, you know, just the slightest movement of someone's face, how that can register on screen and how that can have a really huge impact on the story and the nature of the characters and also the, the overall theme. It also has, 
it is the rare example of a film that doesn't waste a single shot. You know, mm. as soon as a scene is has reached its its kind of climax, it just ends straight away. As soon as the film is, and that carries through to the final scene, where as soon as the necessary impact has been held, uh, the credits roll, and it's like you you just don't know how to react to that, and it is a a wonderfully constructed piece of cinema. Mm. Like I said, uh, like Ed said, it's on US Netflix. If you have the means, please seek it out because it's amazing. Okay, we're down to uh, the last two now. Uh, number two, we have... Well, in fact, at number two and one, we've got two films who couldn't be more different, which I like because it kind of says a lot about us and also, you know, no one wants to hear the same old shit regurgitated. But number two, we're going to talk about 45 years. Yeah, it's been an odd day. It sure has. I just... Uh, <clears throat> stayed, stayed at home, you know, grappling with a ball cock. But you, you're right. I hardly go walking anymore. It was a nice day, so uh, off I went. So where did you go? Just to the village. To buy cigarettes? Mm. <laughs> I've lost my senses now, you know. Mm-hmm. We've said before... We are big fans of uh, Andrew Hayes' work, and uh, he might just have made his best film here. Uh, yeah, I think that is there's a very strong case for it to be his best films. You know, obviously he's competing against Weekend, which was one of the best films of 2011. But this is a a beautiful, beautiful film about a married couple who are uh, in the week leading up to celebrating their 45th wedding anniversary. The husband, played by Tom Courtney receives news that they have found the perfectly preserved frozen body of his girlfriend from many years before, before he met his wife. And the news kind of shakes him up and starts to reveal uh, details about his life before they were married, which causes kind of uh, kind of fissures in the marriage and, you know, makes him quite distant from his wife at a time when they should be kind of celebrating all their years together. And, um, you know, going from Phoenix, if you want to talk about the importance of like just this of small moments of acting and small small uh physical touches uh, charlotte rampling's work in this film particularly during a scene in which she is just watching uh footage on a projector is just um, an amazing example of what can be done just by allowing an actor to inhabit a role and just react to a thing they're seeing even if we don't fully see what they are seeing mm. the one of the great ways to think about 45 years is a as a kind of a, a quiet domestic drama uh, but the other way is to think of it almost like a ghost story mm. like uh, Charlotte Rampling's character receives some information and it's mysterious and she decides to look further in and she goes into a dark attic and she finds herself looking through she's on like a, uh, an old school kind of carousel projector and she and it's kind of going around with these old photos of of her husband and this ex-girlfriend and you know we don't see fully what she's looking at we kind of see through the photos, through the canvas it's being projected on. But those scenes that play out silently, that reveal the full extent of what's happened, but also the implications of such that are like, well, you've been married 45 years, you didn't lie about it, just didn't tell you, what does that mean? Are these things big issues? And the way that's all so delicately played and tied together is just masterful. And we're talking about someone who has only made a couple of films and you know, that's just amazing. He is Andrew Hay, the, the director we're talking about, is is I mean, I can't I just cannot believe he's not being championed more as like the next big thing. 
Yeah, the only reason why I think that he is not is probably because after weekend he he came over to the US and has been working on looking for so long, and he's mm. uh, was also at, while this was being made, he also was working on the looking wrap up TV movie that's coming out next year, and I feel like well that was probably you know a, a good thing for him because he, he created a really interesting and and uh, groundbreaking show uh it also has probably meant that he didn't really get to capitalize on the the goodwill or the the buzz that weekend should have given him if he had made went straight into a film but i think if he's gonna take four years off between each film and they're all going to turn out to be as good as 45 years and if he continues in this vein of being someone who can deliver these kind of acutely observed and heartbreaking dramas if he can be like the british the british cinema's Chekhov, mm-hmm. then I think that he, you know, it's worth the wait because this was every bit as great a film as you would hope to see from the director of something as good as Weekend. Mm, and, and a progression as well. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. It's nice to see that. It's, it's, it's not someone making the same film again, but different. There's progression in his work. There's a, there's a kind of a richness and a complexity to what he's doing um, that kind of belies his experience, which is, you know, staggering to think about. Um, and, and to see him jump from such diametrically opposed uh, ends of a relationship in, in Weekend, he is very much depicting the beginning of a relationship and the, the, the question of whether or not this is going to last. And the and 45 years is to potentially the end of the re- relationship, not in the sense that the marriage is going to dissolve, but the fact that these are two people kind of in the twilight years of their life. You know, they may not have many years left and, and the question of what it means to be with someone for that length of time. Mm. And we talked about Phoenix having a gripping final scene. The last couple of shots of 45 years, that's heart-wrenching stuff and you know, like kind of a great use of music as well. Yeah, and another case where a song that you have been kind of exposed to earlier in the film, if only, it was, if only because it was mentioned uh, is brought back and means kind of just a, a fantastically huge amount for the way that it is deployed. Mm. Yeah, 45 years, our number two. So the number one film of this year won't surprise many of you because it's number one film for a lot of people, but there's a reason for that, and that's because it's really fucking good. Uh, our number one film of the year is Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> from the moment we first saw it really hasn't it Ed? yeah i mean it was it, it kind of got unseated for a little bit by inside out for me and then i rewatched both of them and even though when i rewatched them both i was like yeah these are both still really really great films rewatching fury road reminded me just how spectacular a work of big budget blockbuster filmmaking actually is mm. i was very skeptical again i didn't think uh the start of the year i'll be talking about kind of the fourth film in a franchise that the third film didn't really leave me wanting any more of. It would be the best film of the year, um, but the, it would be the best film of the year by pretty big margin and would be kind of sweeping the board at Critics Awards and also being a winner of many popular votes. Uh, that's really stunning, and it's kind of testament to a different approach to action cinema, isn't it, Ed? Yeah, I think for me, I was trying to think about what 
really makes it stand out from a lot of other blockbusters. And there's there's lots of things that you can get into in terms of its its filmmaking technique and 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 uh, you know everything. But I think the thing that really made it stand out to me is that it's kind of reverses the standard of what most modern blockbusters uh, do, which is where they will have a convoluted story built around very simple themes. Mm-hmm. And the and, and Mad Max Fury Road does the exact opposite. It has an incredibly simple story, which is literally people go from A to B and then they go back to A again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's about, it's, it's simple. You could transpose it to almost any genre. You know, everyone talks about how it's essentially a Western in many ways, you know, it is in, in a lot of ways just... Uh, stagecoach but with uh, Half-Life Warboys and you know flame-throwing guitars and stuff mm-hmm. but the themes about what it's about you know about the nature of you know de- dealing with you know feminist themes and um, sacrifice and all this sort of thing it has a lot it's a because of a melange of different uh, you know depictions of a, a ultra misogynist society it has all of this stuff going on that's very complicated and very uh, fun to dig into when you kind of consider the film but in the moment the story itself is very simple and the pleasures of it as an action film are immediately apparent because it is immensely entertaining to watch uh this lunatic who has been <laughs> given 200 million dollars destroy all of these cars in the middle of a desert mm. and it's the weird thing is like uh it's an action film it, it, essentially it is a 90 minute car chase Mm-hmm. That is what it boils down to being. Like you say, a very simple story with complex things going on, but it is presented in such a way that the the action is uh, hugely dynamic. A lot of it done for real. A lot of it done uh, kind of or impo- like kind of uh, enhanced with um, yeah, computer trickery. The production design is amazing. Fucking so many weird kinky ideas in there, which is what Mad Max is famous for. Yeah, so you've got the kind of the blind albino guitar kind of playing person who has got a flamethrower shooting out at the end of it. The villain is essentially a kind of like septuagenarian S and M kind of guy. <laughs> it's fucked up. It's so crazy. Um, and then uh, kind of the characters are, whilst not uh, kind of as rich or complex as the, the characters we met in 45 years are not your usual uh, action movie archetypes. There's just so much more going on beyond what appears to be a film about racing through a desert. Yeah, and it, it does have a great central character in uh, Imperator Furiosa, played by Charlize Theron, who does a great performance of a character who is fully determined to do something, even if it gets her killed, mm-hmm. and even if it gets everyone she's trying to help killed, because she clearly realises that the society in which she lives is awful and needs to be t- torn down and destroyed, you know, fuck the patriarchy and whatnot. And that is very much what comes across and is not just kind of paying lip service to feminism. It is kind of very furiously, uh, appropriately enough, feminist in its depiction of how women and men can work together. Best uh, exhibited in the scene in which Max tries to uh, shoot out a light from a great distance away and then with the last bullet left just hands it to... Furiosa and offers to essentially be her the the thing she leans on so that she can get the job done. Mm. Uh, I think that it is great, similar to uh, the moment in uh, Star Wars: The Force Awakens when Ray offers her hand to Finn, and then they just get up and start running. It's a, a film that is a wash 
with these great moments of visual storytelling. You don't really even need the words most of the time. Although some of the things like, oh, what a lovely day, you know, <laughs> dialogue like that is fun to hear. Nicholas Holt's scream. You know, you don't even need the dialogue because the images and the, the way in which the film is edited and constructed uh, just sells the story brilliantly in its own right. Mm. And I remember when we saw the trailer, again, I think, speaking first, both there, I think there was a certain degree of scepticism about whether this was a film we really needed, whether it was a, a franchise that needed to be continued. Um, but the moment we saw the trailer, we were like, oh man, they've they've gone balls out of the bath on this. Yeah, it was very. It was immediately apparent that even though um, George Miller is now into his seventies, and even though he hadn't made a feature film in a while, and he hadn't made a live action feature film in more than a decade, and he hadn't returned to this was like thirty years since he'd made a Mad Max film, he had clearly had these ideas percolating for a very long time of what he would do if he got to make another one, and even and like all of the stories about you know reshoots and it being a troubled production, all those immediately fell fell away when you watched it and think, oh, this is clearly the work of a complete freak and weirdo <laughs> who has not tempered his vision one iota, even though he's working with a huge amount of studio money. <laughs> clearly he took the money, went out to the middle of the desert and just started smashing shit together in a way that only he could do. Mm. And there's something really thrilling about seeing someone being given the kind of uh, free reign to do whatever they really want with the story they want to tell. From the director of Happy Feet and Babe 2 Pig in the City. And Lorenzo's uh, Oil. Yeah, yeah. Mad Max Fury Road, the the most fucking batshit crazy action film you kind of like to see. Um, it didn't set the world on fire box office wise, but do you think it did enough to justify the carnage? Oh, I think, yes, definitely. I think that it probably, I mean, Warner Brothers didn't have a great year in terms of, um, other than... American Sniper, which technically was a film from last year, they didn't have a great year. So I think any a film that made that gets you know on top ten lists and earned a bit of money and maybe is considered a front runner at the Oscars, I think that's got to be considered a a good result. And if uh, if they want to give George Miller another two hundred million dollars to smash up more cars, uh, I think they would be foolish not to let him try it because the goodwill and the acclaim that this one has built up, particularly since it hit Blu-ray and people were able to check it out more, I think probably suggests that you know the the next one out could be even an even bigger hit and could also uh, you know assuming he's got the ideas and he's uh, got the the uh, inventiveness to think of new things to destroy. I think that there is a lot of potential there for another great film in him. Mm, just don't bring Tina Turner back. That would be a huge <laughs> mistake. So there you have it, listeners. That is the top 10 films of the year as voted for by us. That's a pretty solid list, isn't it, Ed? Yeah, and, and like I say, the, this year had a, a surfeit of quality in every genre, every kind of budget scale. There were lots of really great, interesting documentaries which is the case most years, but I feel like this year stuff like Listen to Me, Marlin, and, and obviously the, the the look of silence, um, you know, it, it felt like a year in which there was just great stuff wherever you turned. Mm, mm, absolutely. And 2015 has been a great year for us. It's been our most prolific year. Uh, I'm going to say uh, like most of that, or if not all of that, is down to Ed and his hugely dedicated approach to editing. And I wish to thank you very much for that, Ed. You are way more dedicated to it than I ever could be bothered to be. Um, and yeah, it's uh, kind of looking forward to next year now. We've got like a lot of cool stuff kind of planned. So I, I kind of guess this is goodbye for 2015. I've had a great time. 
as have I, and I would like to thank all of you for listening. This was not only was our most prolific year, I think this was probably our biggest year in terms of downloads and listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had, obviously we put out more episodes, but uh, the uh, proportion of listeners was higher than the increase in episodes compared to last year. So uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you if you've recommended the show to people. Uh, you know, that's that's how the audience grows. If you've reviewed the show, uh, if you haven't reviewed the show, uh, please do that. It's nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, find us on iTunes, subscribe uh, via all the usual channels. Um, hit us up on Twitter, on Facebook. And we will be back next year with a whole whole new bunch of, of absolute waffle and nonsense for you to enjoy. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>